I'm Nick Newton, joined by Will Miles. Welcome to Stand Up and Holler Game Week Edition. We are out of the offseason. Finally. Finally, it's here, Will. We are into the regular season. I see you got your big game orange hoodie on. It's it's football season, man. It must be cold. It's getting colder in that basement, huh? So it's time for some football. Yeah, well, that and then uh, I'm just preparing to, to – um for hurricanes because that's always what happens in september as well so hopefully everybody stays safe my parents are right in the path of the storm obviously gainesville is pretty much right in the path of the storm hopefully everybody stays safe florida the players are getting out of there a day early they're gonna be mm-hmm. flying into dallas and then waiting and then flying out to uh to utah so that's you know making it a little bit weird in terms of game week preparation that sort of stuff you're already going all the way across the country and things just get a little bit strange so eh, it is what it is man but yeah it's getting cold up here it, it once you get to once you get to nighttime there's no more humidity up here anymore once you get to august and we're almost to september so um it's that time of year man starting to feel like football weather up here we'll still be another month before it feels like football weather down there for you guys yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm in the Tampa area, so we are absolutely in the path of uh, Adalia right now. And I, our thoughts and prayers go out to everybody who could potentially be affected by this storm in the coming days here. Uh, Will, let's uh, let's transition to a much less serious topic here. We are going to talk about what we want to see out of the Florida offense in 2023. I'll start with you. Yeah, I mean, I think I want to see a second wide receiver step up is sort of the first thing. Like, we know Ricky Pearsall is going to be the number one wide receiver. Um, he was the favorite target of Anthony Richardson last year. I don't have any doubt that Graham Mertz will be looking for Pearsall. But the defenses know that, too. And so the defenses are going to start focusing. They're going to rotate safeties over. They're going to they're going to um, limit how often Pearsall has one-on-one coverage, which means guys like Caleb Douglas and Khalil Jackson, who were named starters today on the depth chart, those guys are going to have to step up. And it's interesting. We've talked about Mizell, Gene, and Wilson extensively all offseason, and none of them are the starters in this game against Utah, which just goes to show that there's stuff you have to learn at, at each position, and it's rare for true freshmen to step in as starters right away. And so that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for Caleb Douglas or Khalil Jackson to really put an imprint on, especially the Utah game, but throughout the season to be a, at least a reliable second option. That's sort of be the number one thing I'm looking for with the offense. Yeah, very interesting to see Khalil Jackson up there on the depth chart uh, after earning that scholarship in the offseason. For me, Will, I kept it real simple. Can the Gators continue to bring the heat in the running game? I I, I think I texted this to you about 100 times throughout last season. Rule number one, it stays the same from the 2022 season onto the 2023 season here. Feed two, feed seven, repeat. Feed two, feed seven, repeat. I know it gets lost in that tragedy at Vanderbilt last year. Like the the absolute tragedy. It's it's tough to even think about that Vandy game, Will. Uh FSU, you can argue with some play calling in in the second half. Maybe we started leaning on the passing game a little too much at times. But in those wins in the later part of the season in November, uh against AM and South Carolina, and if you even go to that FSU game with the 38 point performance, you had 38 points against FSU. 38 points against South Carolina, 41 against AM. ETN and Johnson combined for over 30 carries in each of those games. And Will, they rushed for no less than 180, and they rushed for up to 261. So within that range, combined for five touchdowns in those three different games the last month of the season. Look, Johnson, ETN, they will reward you if you continue to feed them. And I hope to see a minimum of 30 carries between Florida star running backs on Thursday night. 
Well, it is interesting that you mentioned that, and then you look at the depth chart that they released, and they've got three wide receivers, but they've also got two tight end positions. So they've listed a three deep at two different tight end positions, and they've got Tony Livingston as the starter at one of those tight end positions, and Xanders is the other starter, and he's more of what you would think of as a pass-catching tight end, really, given what we saw from him last year, which means Livingston is a guy that they're going to put in there on the line, and they're going to say, go get us some yards. And Livingston was sort of an offensive line-type tight end tweener coming out of high school and now they've got him in that starting role there and I do wonder whether that's a direct response to what you're talking about because last year yes you texted me feed two feed seven pretty much every game (laughs) but but there was also a definite need to feed 15 last year and I don't think they're going to need to feed 11 quite quite like they needed to feed 15 I think Mertz is going to be Mertz 11 right I can't remember 15 15 15. oh okay so they're not gonna have to feed 15 this year different kind of appetite out of out of 15 this year he's on a diet this year get the get the the ball to the other (laughs) two diet 15 (laughs) so anyway I mean I think that's the other thing I think that we think about in terms of what we want when we're looking at the offense is we want Mertz to be the game manager that he is. Like if Mertz is having to go out there and chuck the ball all over the place, that's probably going to be an issue. He's going to have to like, if we can get above average quarterback play, this team has a chance to go eight and four. If we get below average quarterback play, you're struggling at six and six, somewhere in that range. So, you know, there's a lot of different things we can look for in the offense. I think the second wide receiver stepping up is one that I'm really looking forward to. I think we know what we have in the running backs. The question is, are they going to take advantage of it? And then you sort of look at, you know, the the personnel that they've got. The two tight end positions are curious to me. They didn't do that last year. I don't remember them having two tight end slots where they filled out a three deep. Now, that might be because they didn't have enough tight ends to fill up two tight end spots with three deep. And, and they have him this year, but you know, you've got Arliss Boardingham who's third string for the uh, blocking tight end position ostensibly. And, and that's a little bit of a surprise as well. So, uh, you know, Hey, look, it's kind of fun to see this. And um, you know, that, that's sort of what I'm looking for. It's the reason why they call the off season line season. Well, uh, you know, another, another big point I'm looking for, Will can Mertz manage the game? We were talking about Mertz there. Can he manage the game and avoid the big mistake ever since you've heard about him stepping on the campus here? Nothing but good things, right? Hard worker, dedicated teammate. Heismerts is a word that's been used this offseason. I know it's been used for fun, but it it's definitely a word that's been used a few times out there. And that's all well and good. But this is why I love football. This is why I love sports in general. The time for talk is over. The lights are coming on. It's time to perform. And when the lights were brightest last season on the road, at Ohio State, Graham Mertz, 11 for 20, 94 yards and one interception. Will, that was a pick six in a 52-21 loss. At Michigan State, 14 for 24, 131 yards, two touchdowns and an interception. That interception set up Michigan State deep in Wisconsin territory. They uh, they punched it in for six on a short field, and it eventually led to a 34-28 victory for Sparty in double overtime. Uh, at Iowa, 16 for 36 for 176 yards, one TD, two interceptions, one of which will guess what it did. It's a pick six. It was a pick six. Wisconsin, they, it, they also were shut out in the second half on the way to a 24 10 loss in Iowa at, at, at that game. So, history to me says that no. Graham Mertz is not going to manage the game and take care of the ball and avoid the big mistake in a tough road game situation based on recent trends here. But if he takes care of the ball and if he follows rule number one, what's rule number one, Will? 
Feed two, feed seven. Feed two, feed seven. That could be a formula for success on Thursday night. Well, I mean, look, I think this is what we've been waiting for all offseason. You know, neither you nor I thought that Mertz was going to be the starter. We thought someone else was going to come in through the transfer portal. It's interesting that Jaden Rashada is going to start at Arizona State as a true freshman. So, you know, whether or not that's going to be an interesting subplot to all of this is to see whether Rashada ends up starring there down as the Sun Devil or whether things fall apart for him. And look, I mean, this is somebody that Billy Napier has hitched his wagons to this year, decided not to bring in anybody else through the transfer portal. Um, obviously, with the Rashada stuff and with the Austin Simmons reclassification and flip to Old Miss, they don't have the numbers in the quarterback room that I think they were expecting. Um, and I think if those guys were on campus, we'd feel a little bit different about the position as well. But, you know, this is the guy they brought in. They target him in the transfer portal. They brought him in. You and I have talked extensively this offseason about how the transfer portal sometimes is fool's gold. And, you know, we're going to see. Obviously, I mean, there's that that open question for all offseason has been, is it Mertz or was it Wisconsin's offense? And we're going to find out because <laughs> because if he's just as if he's just as average or below average in Billy Napier's offense, then it's going to be a bit of a struggle. But uh, you know, again, I don't think he's had anybody like Etienne and Johnson behind him in the backfield while he's been at Wisconsin. In fact, if you look at the running game at Wisconsin the last couple of years, you think of Wisconsin as a team that can run the ball all over the place. But that hasn't been the case the last couple of years at Wisconsin. So if they can get him in more third and short situations and, and look, he should have better athletes on the outside and all sorts of different things. I think. The idea that Florida is severely lacking in talent is overrated in some cases, but the average national rank of the guys who are starters on the depth chart is 625. So that offense is not just like teaming with Alabama level talent or Georgia level talent. Merch's going to have to make some plays. And so, you know, like you said, there's some risk associated with that as well. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully he does take a step forward. But again, history, recent trends say no. If Rashada ends up killing it at Arizona State this season and you're feeling down about that at any point, I just want you to stop, take a moment, and know that somewhere deep in the heart of Texas, DJ Lagway probably just scored another touchdown. So we got good things. Good things are on the way, Will. Uh, let's move on here to the next topic, the Florida defense. Things we also want to see. I'll kick this one off. I just kept it real simple. One word, Will. Competency. I want to see some competency this season. We're now starting our third year in a row of saying it was bad last year, but it can't possibly get worse, can it? So I would like to see some level of improvement. A lot of young talent stepping in on this defense. Very excited to see the young talent. Very excited to see the young talent on Thursday night. But can we see that level of competency out of a Florida defense that we just haven't seen in this decade of uh, in the 2020s, Will. Let, let, let's, we have to go all the way back to the year of 2019 since we last played semi-confident ball on defense. Let's see if we can bring that back to the swamp. Yeah, I mean, so mine's tied in with that. And the thing I want to see is I want to see Shamar James making plays in the backfield. So James played very well last year, 47 tackles, two tackles for loss, two sacks. But that's not being in the backfield a lot for a guy who's playing in the middle as a middle linebacker. Um, one of the reasons he was not able to really get in there and make a difference is the guys up front were not occupying all the offensive linemen and allowing the linebackers to shoot the gaps. And look, Florida has had average to below average linebacker play now for about a decade. And James is really a pretty big hope that they're going to get a guy who might even be able to play all SEC level linebacker 
this year. And if you have an all SEC middle linebacker, then your defense is going to be way better than whatever we've seen in the last three or four years. And look, James can't do it alone. You're going to have to have Cam Jackson, Caleb Banks, Chris McClellan, Desmond Watson. You're going to have to have those guys really occupy guys up front. But Shamar James, to me, is the key. If you see him out there making plays in the backfield, then that says that the defensive tackles are doing their job and they're occupying the offensive line, not allowing them to get to the second level. If you see him getting pancaked by a right guard coming around on a on a on a pole, well, now all of a sudden we know that defensive the defensive tackles are struggling and they're not necessarily getting the push they need. So, you know, I would say defensive tackles, but I think James is the guy you focus on. That if Shamar James is out there getting 12 tackles with three tackles for loss every single game, well, now all of a sudden you know that the defense is operating in a way that Austin Armstrong wants it to, and that they're gonna they're going to generate turnovers while they're bringing him in in those different situations. And I just think – I think James is going to be the bellwether for the entire defense. I'm glad you brought up Armstrong because one of the points I wanted to ask you about was how strong of a stamp do you believe Billy Napier will let Armstrong put on this defense right out the gate? Uh, I think we'll know on the first third down. I'm guessing they go cover zero wherever it is and and whatever. Uh, he has been so aggressive in all the tape that I have watched – that I just I don't expect that to change. I think I think Napier is going to allow him to have the freedom to call his defense the way he sees it. And what that means is you're going to see a lot of big plays given up, but I think it also means you're going to see a lot of big plays by the defense. So I think you're going to know right away, and especially we'll talk about it a little bit in terms of the quarterback situation for Utah. But it's not as though it's not as though those guys have a settled situation there at the quarterback position heading into this game either. Mm -hmm. And if you can rattle a guy, it doesn't matter whether it's a home game. If you can rattle a guy on third down, um, you know, on, on one third down, all of a sudden he starts to get happy feet and the ball doesn't get delivered accurately. And and now you've got an opportunity to turn the ball over quick, uh, even if it's just forcing three and outs, but to turn the ball over quick and all of a sudden your offense has another shot. So um, I, I think Armstrong is going to be aggressive. I think that's his MO. I think if Utah will know that coming in, and I think they will try to take advantage of it. And the question will be, can the defensive backs hold up? And honestly, in some ways, can the, can the linebackers hold up in coverage too? Because you think about where Utah has some guys they want to throw to, a lot of times those guys might be guarded by the linebackers. Yeah, especially a quarterback uh, who might get rattled if he's uh, seven months off an ACL injury too. That might be that might be an impact in this game. You know, another thing I wanted to know, Will, it's who's going to step up and make the big play. If Florida's going to win, who's going to make that big play on the defense? Last year, the defense, it didn't play particularly well. They let Utah really control the ball and go up and down the field, but they stood strong three times inside the red zone, forcing Utah to settle for a field goal deep in, inside the 20, inside the red zone. They turned it over, turned them over on down, downs with that goal line stand. And then, of course, Amari Bernie's game-winning interception that uh, got Billy Napier's first win as the head coach at the University of Florida will uh, – we need those types of plays. We need we need someone to step up. Someone's got to step up on that defense to make the play in the key moment. Yeah, I mean, I think the guy is going to be Prince Liam and Milan. Like to have a defensive end or a buck or whatever you want to call him who can win a one-on-one -on -one battle on the outside against the opposition's tackle is really something that was missing last year. Now, some of the some of what was missing was were the defensive tackles who were able to get double teamed, who who opened those things up on the outside. But look, Brenton Cox was supposed to be that guy, and he just wasn't. He wasn't the guy who, you know, if he'd have put up 12 or 13 sacks last year all by himself, that defense looks a lot different. But they only had 23 sacks the entire year. And in order to get to the quarterback, they had to blitz. There will be some moments where Armstrong is going to bring the house. 
but you can't bring the house every play. And if you can get pressure with only four guys, you don't have to bring the house every play, which means you can protect your guys on the back end. And so if human Milan can prove that he can win those battles, those one-on-one battles on a regular basis, now all of a sudden you've got the ability to play some of those simulated pressures to play zone behind your four guys or to play man with a couple of high safeties just for protection and really start double teaming guys that you want to take out of the game. You could do so much more schematically if the front four can get pressure. So human Milan is the guy that when you talk about that big play, the key play, hitting a guy in the back and, and dislodging it and getting your, getting yourself a big fumble, hitting him and making him sort of throw a fluttering pass up there that turns into a pick, making him rush the ball so that he throws it out on the outside. You think about Anthony Richardson a couple of years ago, throwing that pick six against Georgia um, you know, that was one of those where it's like the the linebacker saw it coming and Richardson sort of rushed it out there because he anticipated that they were coming and he was seeing ghosts at that point and all of a sudden it turns into a pick six. Those are the types of things that you're going to start to see. If you can speed up the quarterback, then all of a sudden the turnovers start to come. And we'll see a guy like Jalen Kimber or Jason Marshall or somebody like that get an interception. But I think in many ways the interception will be due to the fact that human Milan has the guy looking looking behind him, wondering when he's going to come and when he's going to get drilled again. And, uh, you know, to me, that's the thing is if human Milan can take a real step forward this year, then Florida's front four um, will give Austin Armstrong the flexibility he needs to be aggressive without being reckless. And I think that's he's always sort of teetering on that line. And the question will be, does the personnel allow him to stay on the aggressive side as opposed to being on the reckless side? Yeah, I know we are at that point at the end of the offseason here where maybe some of you are tired of us plugging our magazine every single week of this show. But, hey, we only have a few more days of the preseason, so we might as well plug it one more time. Any of you who bought the magazine, make sure you check in. Will sent an email out to the entire group that bought the magazine with 10 additional pages where he broke down plays from Austin Armstrong's defense at Southern Miss. It comes with the uh, QR code in the corner where you can really follow along nicely with those plays to really get a taste of what's to come with this Florida defense this year. I'll be interested to see how much of it's on display against Utah and maybe Hey, if it's going to be strategic. Is it going to be like that if we're up big? Is it going to be like that if we're down a little bit? Is it going to be like that in key spots? We'll see how much uh, is actually unleashed against Utah on Thursday night. We're going to talk about Read and Reaction Magazine. Buy your copy. Only a few more days left in the <laughs> preseason to buy your copy. Digital copies still available online. Where will? Readreaction.com slash MAG. All right, that'll be the last time y'all hear it this year, so we got to get it in one more time. All right, let's move on. Advantages that Utah has over Florida. Well, Utah has – they may have been that outsider crashing the BCS party in 2004 under Urban Meyer, but the Utes have become a member of the establishment class of college football over the last two decades. I'm not talking about the Alabamas of the world. But that second tier, they are really solid, really solid. They worked their way up into a Power 5 conference under Kyle Whittingham, and they have won the last two Pac-12 titles. Hey, if they win one more, they'll win the last three Pac-12 titles. And by the last three, I mean potentially the last three Pac-12 titles ever. Uh, so that, that's got a couple different hitting you from a couple of different directions there, Will. But Whittingham has produced really steady results leading Utah to at least nine wins in seven of the last eight uh, non-COVID seasons. Uh, Like I said, the back-to-back Pac-12 titles, 10 wins in three of the last four seasons. 
So this has been a really consistent program over the course of the last eight years. Well, Billy Napier's trying to build something that looks a lot like Utah football in some respects. Well, I mean, maybe a little bit. I I think um, I, I think Utah has been a good program. I don't think they've been a great one. I think they got them into the Pac-12, which is good. But I mean, they haven't had a season that was really magical since Urban Meyer, really. Right? I mean, they've they played a couple of big time bowl games, but they haven't really been competitive when it comes to getting into the the national title picture. I think that's one of the things that was disappointing for them when they lost Florida last year is it sort of immediately took them out of contention for anything. If they could have started out with a win in the swamp, all of a sudden that sort of sets your sets your season season up. But look, I mean, the Pac-12 has been um, has been viewed as a substandard conference over the last decade or so. We've seen that when it comes to teams with one loss from the Pac-12 or immediately out of the playoff consideration, as opposed to teams from the ACC, SEC, and Big Ten can still get in with a loss. And even teams in the Big 12, right? I think TCU had a loss last year and still got in. So they're they're the fifth conference out of all this stuff. And that doesn't mean Utah's a bad team, but it does mean when we look at them and say they're the Pac-12 champions, it doesn't quite have the same... Um, same gravitas that it did when USC was winning with Matt Leinart and Reggie Bush. Like the Pac-12 was was a bigger deal back then than it is now. So, you know, look, I think Utah's a very good team. I think they are a relatively talented team. But I think if you're talking about – this is not – Florida's not playing Michigan to open the season. And I think if we were playing Michigan, I'd have a very different opinion about what's going to happen. Um, I think Utah is a team that can beat Florida, no doubt, and certainly going to Salt Lake City is is a big ask for the Gators. But this isn't a team that's unbeatable for a team like the Gators. I think that's sort of the difference. If Florida was going to Columbus to play Ohio State or if they were going to Clemson or if they were going to to – um, you know, Texas or Oklahoma, I think we'd look at that. Well, maybe not Oklahoma, but if they're going to Texas, I think we'd look at it and go, eh, this is going to be really rough. Um, this one, I'm, I'm expecting a good game. I'm expecting the Gators to be competitive. Well, when you talk about experience, I, I would definitely put that in the Utah advantage column. I think that's a huge advantage against a Florida roster that's going to be trotting out a lot of young players. I know you talk about Graham Mertz is coming in with plenty of experience, but there are a lot of young players getting situated in new roles in a tough environment to kick off their Gators career. Yeah. I mean, so there's a couple of things. I think the real advantage for Utah and, and I don't necessarily call this an advantage other than maybe it's a neutralizer is that, you know, we talked earlier about feed two, feed seven for Florida. Well, Utah is going to have feed Jackson, feed Bernard. They're at the running back position. Jaquindon Jackson really came on the last few games of the year. He went 10 rushes for 117 yards against Colorado, 13 for 105 versus USC, and then 13 for 81 against Penn State. That's 57% of his total total yards for the season. That coincided with Tavion Thomas, who was the guy who really picked it up in the second half against Florida last year. He declared for the NFL and left the program prior to the Colorado game, and, and Jackson came right in. So Jackson averaging 6.8 yards per rush last year, Bernard averaging 5.0 yards per rush Jackson's actually seems like the more explosive back and that might be a problem for a Florida defense that struggled the other thing is is you've got you got Brant Keithy Brant Keithy there at tight end I know he suffered a season-ending ACL injury certainly recovery for ACLs not necessarily great the question is is he going to be as explosive as prior to the injury will he be aggressive in game one all those sorts of things but Keithy was the guy in fact Dalton Kincaid caught 70 catches last year after Keithy went out um, or for the entire season, but 
but Keithy was the guy coming into the season that everybody sort of thought was the main tight end and that Kincaid was sort of his Robin to, to Keithy's Batman. If Keithy can come back as Batman, Florida doesn't have anybody at the tight end position who can who can match that production. And certainly I think that's going to stretch the linebackers in a way that you don't necessarily always get stretched. You don't always face an all-conference level tight end when you go out there, and Florida's going to see that right away. Now, there's great preparation for Brock Bowers coming up, coming up in a couple of months against Georgia, but those are the two, especially on offense, that I would really point to as as advantages. The tight end position, um, assuming that Keithy comes back and is healthy and is able to sort of resume his prior his prior ability, which that's still a question, and then at running back, just to be able to neutralize Montrell Johnson ETN. Like, if you were to tell me, who does Florida have an advantage at at the over at the running back position? Most of the time, I'm going to say Florida's got the advantage. But in this game, I don't know if that's necessarily true. I think Utah has the is going to have the ability to run the ball as well. My last point here, Will, for the Utah advantage is Rice Eccles Stadium. I'm sure the Heat played a factor in Utah's trip to the Swamp last year. But we have to remember Utah was also six yards away from actually walking away with the win in that one. So while the altitude might be a storyline going into the game, I'm not sure if it will really uh, have that much of an impact at the end of the day. It's definitely something to get used to, but I'm sure the Gators have been training and, and they're going to be ready for it. Uh, this is really what I want to note about Rice Eccles Stadium. I know there's been shots on Twitter about Rice Eccles being a smaller stadium. I know that people are looking at the Pac-12 schedules and everything. Okay, whatever uh, with Utah's winning streak right now. The Utes have a 14-game home winning streak that dates back to the home opener of the COVID season against USC in 2020. Uh, 6-0 the last two seasons. Uh, 2021, a win over number four, Oregon at home. And last season, a win over number seven, USC. Also will. 40-plus points out of the offense in five of those six wins last season at home, and they did not get held to under 35 points in each of their six games in Rice-Eccles Stadium. So this is a team that plays tough in Salt Lake City, and uh, I it just really feels like Florida is going to be up for a track meet with these Utes in Salt Lake City if they have a shot at winning. I mean, we'll see. I, I think the the thing that we got to really factor, and, and this is something, you know, we talk about advantages. Last year before the Rose Bowl, Utah had a clear advantage at the quarterback position, right? And Rising has been there for a lot of those games that you're talking about. And it's unclear whether Rising is even going to play. And the backup, Brandon Rose, seemed to pull ahead in the quarterback battle. He's a freshman, and he gets hurt. And so now Bryson Barnes Jr. is the guy that the Utes have listed as backup on their depth chart. Um, so you've got a guy who started one game who was relatively unsuccessful against the Penn state defense last year, um, when he came in in relief and look, I mean, he had like a full month to prepare for that game because it was a bowl game, right? He got more reps coming into that game than he would have all year long. So same thing. I mean, he's going to be sharing reps with rising, I'm sure, but he's gotten a lot of reps, but it's not like he wasn't prepared when you go into that Rose bowl game, he should have been ready to go. So, I mean, look, if, if rising can't go. And they've got Barnes. Is that an advantage for Florida at the quarterback position? I'm not sure we're going to have an advantage that many times this year. But if Rising can't go, or if Rising is really limited, 
is that an advantage? So again, I, I get what you're saying about the home environment and all that sort of stuff, but it's a completely different quarterback room. If rising's not in there, than it has been for a lot of those wins that you're citing and rising has been a guy who with his legs has made major plays to make things go. So even if he's playing, there might be some limitation in terms of what's he's do, what he's doing. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's like saying, Oh, you know, the swamps are really hard place to play when Emory Jones and Anthony Richardson are your quarterback all of a sudden thing, you know, you start losing some home games. It's like, yeah, you don't lose those home games when, when Kyle Trask is your quarterback, you don't lose those home games when Tim Tebow is your quarterback. It's, it's only when you got a guy who's not playing very well that those home games start to be, start to be propositions where he can lose it. So to me, that's the thing is if you're looking at, um, if you're looking at why they're good at home, it's because they've got very good, they've had very good quarterback play. And is that quarterback play going to continue? I think that's a big question coming into this one. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. That's how it's been the last couple of seasons with the Utes, and one of the reasons why that gets a lot of that environment gets a lot of respect in the college football world. Uh, let's move on. Talk about. I also do want to note Utah game number two. They go down to Baylor, I believe. So that's a tough second game too. So I, I've heard some talk out there about uh, you know maybe you let Rising ease his way into the season. Don't prioritize them as much against Florida. Maybe Florida can benefit from that. I don't know, man. They got Florida and Baylor out the gate. I think Rising's going to come out swinging. I definitely think his legs are going to be impacted, though, from that ACL issue. Uh, Will, let's talk about some of the advantages Florida has over Utah. You want to kick off the section? Yeah. No one's going to believe I'm going to say this. I think Florida has an advantage on defense. I think Utah's defense is terrible. They were 29th last year in points allowed, but they were 90th in yards per play. And it was all a matter of turnover luck. They played, they played Oregon State. They gave up 16 points, but they allowed 6.2 yards per play. So they should have given up 33 points. Against Arizona, they gave up 20 points, but they gave up seven yards per play. So you would expect them to give up 42. And what happened in those games against the Beavers, Utah had four interceptions, but two of them were in the red zone, like inside the five-yard line where you where Oregon State was was driving for touchdowns and they get the turnover there. And then even more sort of chancy against Arizona, they got seven forced fumbles and four recoveries, two of which were in their own, were in their own territory. That kind of stuff doesn't happen. And if you look, they had 24 total turnovers that were caused last year. 12 of them were fumbles. The two previous seasons, they'd gotten six fumble recoveries each of those seasons. So it was an anomaly that they got all those turnovers and it made their defense look way better than it was. And anybody who watched, so like, if you look at their rank for, for 20 plus plays allowed, they were 87th in the country. Florida was 93rd and they were 123rd in 40 plus plays, 40 plus yard plays allowed compared to Florida. Who's only 79th. Ooh, the Gators were better. Um, so if you go watch the rewatch the Rose Bowl, and I'm going to be releasing a, an article that's a preview of this game, but if you go watch rewatch the Rose Bowl, Penn State has a ton of enormous plays, and it looks like Todd Grantham is coordinating the Utah defense. They have no idea what they're doing when they're lining up. Their defensive backs are all out of position. They leave a bunch of guys unguarded going down the field. They have multiple guys bite on pump fakes on slants when the safety should be the guy who's playing deep. They, they were constantly looking to the side. There was an 80 seven yard run where the safety the deep safety quote unquote who gets beat he was way up by the line of scrimmage but the deep safety who gets beat is looking at the sideline for the signal for what he's supposed to do as the ball is snapped i'm like i've seen that before i watched it in 2020 and 2021 the entire season we would have just skewered florida's defensive coordinator 
if you saw that kind of stuff in the Rose Bowl. And in fact, we did skew Florida's defensive coordinator for things the last couple of years. By the time that Florida State game, I was pretty much uh, I was being deferential, but it seemed like it was time for Patrick Tony to go. And and I'm curious. I mean, the the defensive coordinator for 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 Utah has been there for an extended period of time, but at some point, you know, are guys really listening? Because what I saw in that Rose Bowl, so Morgan Scally is is the uh, is the defensive coordinator there at Utah. What I saw was players who've tuned out the defensive coordinator. And we know what happens when you sort of see that in a bowl game where the defense gets crushed and all of a sudden you come into a new season. So I, I think Florida has, has an advantage. I think Utah's defense was bad last year. I think they lost. It's interesting. You go and look, I read an SI article that talked about the, um, the guys that they lost this year that who were going to the NFL and Clark Phillips was a cornerback selected by the Falcons in the fourth round, mainly because he was sort of a smaller kind of tweener guy. But but the SI, this was SI Utah, called him arguably the greatest defender to ever suit up for the Utes. So they're losing the greatest defender ever at cornerback that they've ever had. They're bringing back pretty much the all of the defensive backs that they had otherwise who were bad last year, except for now they've got Tao Johnson stepping in at nickelback and he's an offense turned defense project. He played four games at wide receiver and he's the nickelback. So you got a team that was really bad against the pass last year. You're replacing an all conference guy, maybe even all American type guy with a guy who played wide receiver last year for four games as he redshirted. And I'm seeing signs of a defensive coordinator who was struggling to get through with his players because otherwise the lack of alignment and all that sort of stuff that you see, it's 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 reminiscent of some things we've seen at Florida. Now, look, can they iron all that stuff out? Absolutely. But everybody seems to be thinking that Florida's defense has to take this major step forward and Utah's tough and rugged and they'll be able they, they've already got this great defense. But what I'm saying is the underlying stats don't suggest that was the case last year. It suggests they got a lot of turnover luck that turned some of those games that they had that that could have been a lot closer, could have been an opportunity for them to lose. And instead they were able to win those games. And this is a team that was probably much closer to eight and four than they were to to ten and two like they were during the regular season. And uh, you know, there's a reason why that game in the swamp was close. It's because Florida wasn't a very good team, but I'm not sure that Utah was much, much better last year either. I think they just play in a much easier conference. I would definitely double check uh, who missed, who played and who didn't play in that Rose Bowl. I think there was a little un- uh, instability, uh, instability there in the Utes secondary. I know Phillips, I think, was one of those guys who actually uh, skipped it. Um, yeah. but RJ yeah, Hubert was the safety who was, who was out of position. And that guy was a red shirt senior. Well, so. and I, I do know, I do know you've mentioned the stats with this defense, which is really interesting because I think most people just think of Utah and Winningham and they've traditionally been a team. I mentioned the scoring outburst the last few years here that they scored 35 or more in the home games last year. Traditionally, this has been a program that plays great defense and kind of gets by on offense in the last few years. You talked about it last year. With, with, if you didn't pay much attention to Utah football, you would think, hey, yeah, the defense is still great out there. Will's on to something there, hopefully. Hopefully we see that get exposed on uh, Thursday night. So so, so here, here's the point I make. It's typically somewhere around 5.2, 5.3 yards per play. is kind of average, maybe like top 
25, top 30. Mm-hmm. They gave up 7.2 yards per play against Florida, 6.2 against Oregon State, 8.2 against UCLA, 8.1 against USC, 7.0 against Arizona, 5.6 against Oregon, 6.2 in the rematch against USC, and 8.5 against Penn State. So, yes, there might have been some guys missing in that game against Penn State, <laughs> but, but, but the statistics that I'm citing have to do with the full body of work, yeah. and they were consistently bad against offenses that were even reasonable and and so look i could they be a lot better this year absolutely but there hasn't been a lot of turnover in terms of the um in terms of the personnel other than johnson stepping in for phillips and if phillips left and all of a sudden they gave up 8.5 yards per play against penn state and couldn't stop anybody in the secondary well that's just indicative of a problem they're probably still going to have this year because they're trying to replace a guy who who they probably don't have the talent to replace Hey, SI writer, by the way, Clark Phillips being the best in the history of the program. You ever heard of Devin Lloyd? That guy was pretty good. Jacksonville Jaguar, great. Devin Lloyd, come on, get out there. Uh, all right, I'm going to go with this for the Gators. Biggest advantage for the Gators, unpredictability. I, I, I love that the Gators have been a total mystery to the world this offseason. It was tough writing an entire preseason magazine about them, quite frankly, because there are so many things up in the air about this team right now. And you've seen people pick Florida. I think I saw Stuart Mandel just had them at three wins. Uh, you've seen other people pick Florida as high as eight wins or nine wins. And they each equally have the same level of certainty with those picks. It's very interesting to see that. I believe the uh, over-under number, at least it started at five and a half on the season win total for the Gators this season. So I think that's Vegas even saying, yeah, we're not we're not totally sure. But will Mizell be a weapon deep? Will we see him sneak by the secondary and, uh, you know, get a haul in a deep ball? Are we going to see Wilson come out the gate? and make an impact early. Will Armstrong's new aggressive approach force rising to adjust early? There's a lot of things with Florida that are just unknown, and I think that level of mystery going into the battle here is tougher to prepare for for Utah and its advantage skaters. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I I think um, I would much rather know what we've got and know that it's three stud wide receivers and an offensive line that's got, you know, 60 starts between them. But, uh, you know, look, that's not what you're going to get in the second year of a head coach. I think what you're going to what you're going to see is a team that's much more disciplined this year than last year. I think we can we hopefully can see that Um, if we don't, then I think we've got issues. But uh, um, but I I don't know. I I think (laughs) I don't I'm not sure how unpredictable it is when you've got Graham Mertz at quarterback and you've got us sitting here or you sitting here going feed two feed seven. It's like, they know where the bread's buttered. They know what they're going to have to do to stop it. Look, Oregon state did too. So last year in that bowl game, the running game just never got started and Jack Miller couldn't do anything. Now did the team want to be there and all those different things that you can say about a bowl game. But um, you know, but still, I I think I'm actually going to be really curious to see how unpredictable it is. I think it's unpredictable in that we don't know how good they can be and we don't know how bad they can be but i'm not sure that the play calling and the execution is going to be all that unpredictable it's certainly not going to be as creative as it was with anthony richardson under center so um yeah i, I see what you're saying in terms of like we don't know how good they'll be but I, I i don't know that uh i think the unpredictability may be more on the defensive side of the ball than the offensive where you've got armstrong and the question we're asking is is what i said earlier about him sort of 
riding that razor's edge between reckless and aggressive. And you know he's going to be aggressive, but the question if you're a quarterback is, is he really going to give me cover zero here? Like, am I really going to get the opportunity to take a deep shot with man-to-man the whole way across the board? And, you know, every once in a while you get that deep shot and it's great. In fact, if you've watched the quarterback documentary on Netflix, you see multiple times where the guys are just sitting there begging for single coverage on the outside, even though they know they're going to take a shot to the ribs. Eh, college game, sometimes you cover up your ribs and you sort of turtle down instead of letting that ball go, or maybe you don't even know where the ball needs to go right off the bat if you're not familiar with that. So to me, the uncertainty there probably lies more on the defensive side of the ball than the offensive side of the ball, just because there's there's 13 games of tape to understand what Billy Napier wants to do. Certainly his quarterback's different, but a lot of the a lot of the players on offense are still the same. Defense, a lot of personnel turnover and brand new defensive coordinator as well. Yeah. I agree with a lot of what you said, but you did not have a guy with Mizell type speed on the outside. So he only needs to get by once or twice. Well, you can go 17 to 24 and hit a deep ball or two that, that could be productive there. Uh, Utah, speaking of that, uh, that defensive side of the ball for Austin Armstrong, Utah is starting a true freshman left tackle. Spencer Fano is getting the nod for the Utes. Will can Armstrong and the defense, you want to make a statement early, take advantage of a true freshman left tackle making his first start. I tell you what, I'm looking forward to the stunts like that. That's the first, they need to be running crossing stunts on the first third down that they have make those guys communicate, make them pass one guy to the other. You saw it a couple of years ago with Reese and, and with Delance where especially early in the season, they just did not handle stunts well. And so you have the opportunity here to to do some things schematically to make that left tackle wonder, right? And if you've ever seen some highlights, you'll see this all the time on Twitter after a game where like the right guard or the left guard will just be sitting there with nobody to block while the whole train comes from from the other side because they overloaded one side versus the other. Like you can overwhelm a guy who's a true freshman pretty early on. And, you know, again, left tackle, right-handed quarterback, you're going to get drilled in the back if the left tackle screws up. So there's an opportunity to get some turnovers there. There's an opportunity to to, to do some things. Now, look, Fano was the was a four-star, the 42nd-ranked player in the 24-7 sports composite out of Provo, Utah, so he's a home, homegrown guy. Um, he may be really, really good, right? But I think what would we be saying if Florida was starting a true freshman on the offensive line at left tackle right now? We'd be going, oh, boy. Like, this is a big ask for a big-time game to start with, prime time. You were just playing high school football, you know, 12 months ago, and now you're out there in the middle of a huge stadium, national TV, with Prince of and Milan coming off of one side and, and Tyreek Sapp coming off the other. That's a different that's a different animal, right? And and so look, he's 300 pounds, but is he strong enough to be able to take those guys? Is there a bull rush component to this? Um, I, I think there's some things Florida's gonna try to do. I think they'll see how physical he is and probably try to bull rush him to start with. And then I think they're gonna try to confuse him with some stunts, and there's gonna be an opportunity there for a guy like Shamar James or for a guy like Scooby Williams to slide in when there's a hole given up because there's a miscommunication on the offensive line, and all of a sudden you got a free shot at the quarterback. So yeah, I mean, look. I think Fano will be good by the end of the year, but I think anytime you start a true freshman on the offensive line, it's a risk, especially at left tackle. Well, it's game week. Of course, the episode goes by like that. Just super fast, super fast episode right here. We're going to make our final predictions with the scores, Will, and we're going to talk about the spread here for a sec. Before, before we dive into that, I do want to note that despite the recent success, Utah has lost at least one game 
in September in in the last four non-COVID seasons. So 18, 19, 21, 22, as much success as this team has had, they've had struggles early in the season. So if you want to get Utah, better to play them early than to play them late. Florida saw that last year. So we saw that example in 2022. This started – I'm using Odd Shark here. Well, I'm using the Odd Shark website here. It says the spread started at 8. I know it was higher at one point. I think it was 10.5 on other sites. But for Odd Shark here, it says 8. Uh, they got currently da- down to 6.5. Utah is a 6.5-point favorite, Will. So do you got the – who do you got with Utah as a 6.5-point favorite? I got Florida winning this one, 34-24. I, I think the Gators are going to – I think the Gators are going to hit a couple of big plays. I think they're going to win the game. I think this is really a game where you've got Utah's quarterback versus Graham Mertz, and I think a hobbled a hobbled rising or the third-string quarterback versus Mertz is a wash. I think both defenses were bad last year, which means you think about Utah sticking with Morgan Scalley at defensive coordinator and Florida moving on to Austin Armstrong, which one's going to pay larger dividends. And I'm going to go with Armstrong. I think Florida gets a couple of big time turnovers off of, off of younger players on that Utah offense or a struggling rising who's getting hit because he can't get out of the pocket because it's his first game back after an ACL injury. And I think Florida's going to be able to take advantage. I think ETN probably hits a big run there at the end, maybe when it's like 27-24 to put it away, 34-24. Yeah, that would be fantastic. I This is a game that I've been worried about all offseason. I, I think this Utah program is very tough at home. It would be fantastic if Florida could come out of this one with a win. I'm not reading too much into this game. Uh, I got Utah winning 31-20, so I got the Utes covering. We should have had you go second, Will. I'm going to be a bummer on that, but I got Utah 31-20 in this one. But I I will say what I'm looking for out of this team, you got Tennessee in the swamp September 16th. This is a great chance to get ready for SEC play and – and and go out to Salt Lake in a tough environment and to make a statement for a team that, hey, we, we, we're seeing a lot of new faces on this team. Let's see what they're able to do. You got Florida 34-24. I got Utah at 31-20. I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. That's all I could say, Will. You're so negative all the time, Nick. Like I, I have to be the light. I have to be the sunshine that's brought to this. I, I've actually been enjoying this. We've done the toss-up series over at Reading Reaction for some of the opponents, and I've been able to pick them apart the same way I pick apart Florida. And everybody thinks I'm being optimistic. It's just because I'm starting to look at the flaws of the opponents <laughs> as opposed to Florida specifically. And look, it's interesting. A couple of years ago, I guess it was 2017 when Florida played Michigan. I saw that one coming, and I, I think I missed by like a point in terms of the overall spread on that one and i'm not always i'm not always dead on but you could see that one coming just because of sort of what michigan had coming back what florida had coming back and and some of the disadvantages specifically that matched i think that's one of the good news is one of the things that's good news this year for florida is i don't think that the strengths of utah necessarily are set out to isolate the the weaknesses of florida and one of the things you'll notice you know everybody talks about how utah is a great offensive team are a great defensive team and really hard nose and that sort of stuff. But they're also one of those teams that has to move the ball down the field. They don't necessarily get a ton of explosive plays. And Austin Armstrong's defenses specifically give up explosives 
and are explosive in their own right. And so with a in a game where the explosives aren't necessarily going to come from the offense, I think it sort of tilts things in Florida's direction. Now, the Tennessee game you mentioned, I think actually that starts to tilt in the other direction, and we'll see as we get closer to that what we think. But this is one where I just think a lot of Florida's weaknesses – aren't necessarily going to be able to be exploited by Utah. It's not that Florida doesn't have weaknesses. I think that when we look at the Utes and what they're bringing to the table, um, I think they're going to struggle to, 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 to isolate those things and really take advantage. And I think Florida will have some stuff where they'll be able to take advantage of some of the stuff we've seen for Utah. So, look, I mean, I wouldn't be, like, shocked if Utah won this game. I'd be kind of shocked. So I had the spread at 7.5. I'd be kind of shocked if at that. It started out, I think, on FanDuel at 7.5, worked its way down to, like, 4, and then went back up to 7.5. I would be surprised if Florida doesn't cover seven and a half. Um, you know, six again, I'm not like shocked just because losing by a touchdown wouldn't be a surprise. You've got them losing by 11. I, I'd be very surprised if that happens. I think this one is a close game until the end. I have Florida by 10 because, like I said, I think they're going to hit a run at the end that sort of opens it up. But if Florida won 27 24, that wouldn't be a surprise to me either. I, I need to see Mertz Pervet. I need to see Merch prove it. I'm not going to go in with blind faith on that. So if I, I got I got to see him prove it, and if he proves it, uh, maybe maybe that pick will look a little different against Tennessee in a couple of weeks. So I'll tell you what: if you gave me Utah or Tennessee, and I can only have one of the two, it's not even something I'm thinking about. I'm taking that Tennessee game all the way. So I think this is a great opportunity for a young team with a lot of turnover from last season uh, to get some great great reps. And of course, you're the Gators; you're going out to play to win, but trying trying to temper my own expectations i'm talking to myself i feel like i'm not trying to do anything for anybody out there i'm trying to temper my own expectations here so that i'm not sky high i'll, I'll have myself convinced we're going to win by kickoff no doubt but <laughs> trying to temper expectations going into game one here because i do think this is a tough environment and if the gators do come out with the victory will it's going to be extremely impressive so it's going to be extremely impressive and uh We'll, we'll, we might have to get some Heismerch t-shirts out there. I was going to say, we're going to have to figure <laughs> out what the uh, what the penalty is when we pick these things and we're picking the opposite this year. Like we got some sort of bet or something like that. I got I got this little guy that I got for uh, somebody made this for me at work. It's a blue and orange F-bomb that gets thrown at the TV from time to time whenever, <laughs> whenever things go wrong. So uh, hopefully I don't have to use it that much in, in the game coming up on Thursday. But, you know, like you said, this is our Christmas, dude. It's And, and a lot of you guys who are listening to it, it's your Christmas as well, right? We get to open up the package every Saturday. And uh, this year we get to open one a little bit early. Get to open it on Christmas Eve because it's Thursday night game. I'm excited. Hopefully you all took Friday off work like I did. And uh, and we can all uh, we can all enjoy a beverage in fri- on Friday morning to help us recover from the ones we had on Thursday night. <laughs> well, like we've said the whole episode, game week, Will. Game week. Got to be excited. Got to be excited. I hope everybody enjoyed the Utah preview We will see you next week discussing the aftermath of Utah and looking ahead to McNeese State. For Will Miles, I'm Nick Newton. Have a great weekend, everybody, and go Gators. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to Stand Up and Holler. If you're interested in more information from me and Nick, you can go over to readandreaction.com. You can like and subscribe our YouTube channel here at Read and Reaction. Or you can go to patreon.com slash read and reaction to support us, get extra information, and we do ask anythings over there every once in a while as well. So check us out. Thanks for listening.